Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Recording? Oh, perfect. My guest today is uh, Peter Dare, and he is a historian in science. And, uh, and, and my first question is, how did you get into specifically the his- history of science? Well, it's interesting. I um, went to university at, at Cambridge University uh, in the natural sciences tripos uh, with the intent of uh, becoming a physicist. Uh, and I found over the course of time um, that everyday science wasn't quite as interesting as the stuff that I'd always read about. Um, at Cambridge, there is a history and philosophy of science option within the natural sciences tripos. Uh, and I had always been interested in the history of science. Uh, so I tried that and I found that the history of science was much more interesting on a day-to-day basis than actual science itself, because with history of science, you got to think about interesting things all the time. Right. So I ended up doing history of science at Cambridge and uh, went on to do it, do it at the postgraduate level. And uh, the rest is history of science, really. Is, uh, is, that a, is, is it common for scientists to study history of science or is it more? Um, there are some people who do do that, um, people who actually sometimes have quite distinguished uh, scientific careers who then get interested in the history of science in a serious way. Uh, The geologist Martin Rubwick, geologist and paleontologist Martin Rubwick, uh, is an outstanding example of that. Um, But it's hard to generalize. I think most people get into history of science from uh, one of the sciences uh, rather than from history, but that's by no means universally the case. Right. And, uh, you know, with, considering we live in the modern age, um, I want to ask, why do so many people still deny science? Like, that they're still denied that, uh, no, that's not real. It's uh, all fake news, if you will. What, what's your, what do you think about the people who still deny science today? Well, it depends on what counts as science for any particular person. Most people who deny particular scientific uh, arguments Uh, like to do with global warming or something of that sort, don't say that they don't believe science. They say they don't believe scientists or they don't believe this particular bit of science. But they always say that the science is wrong rather than that science itself is at fault. Um, So there's a great deal of faith in the idea of science, whatever that's supposed to mean. Uh, But I don't think there's a great deal of uh, doubt about proper science itself, whatever people take that to mean. Do you believe that religion has been part of denying this uh, science, especially with Christian? I'm not trying to wish and anyone, but not with Christianity and such. No, I don't think so. Um, 
it's a, a very complicated story. The relationship between science and religion <clears throat> has always been a bit of a complicated one. Um, but generally speaking, you can't say that they were at loggerheads. There are particular, uh, particular episodes, famous ones like Galileo or um, Darwin and evolution that people point to. But in general, um, I don't think that it's the case that you can say that religion and science as two monolithic uh, belief systems are opposed to one another. Um, much of the most um, significant work in the sciences has historically been carried out by people with um, religious intent behind them. Um, so there's no real contradiction there uh, for many people. Right. And uh, of course, uh, the, the, my first question, I guess, you mentioned this in one of your lectures, as I've seen on YouTube, published on YouTube. What, what is philosophical, philosophical, sorry, if I say that wrong, philosophical science? Hang on, what, what is which? Uh, philosophical science, philosophy of science, if you oh, will. Philosophy of science. Forgive me um, if I said it wrong. No, no, it's philosophy of science. Well, philosophy of science is simply uh, a form of philosophy that's concerned with um, knowledge claims made by the sciences and how one evaluates their legitimacy, uh, how one evaluates their verisimilitude, that sort of thing. So anything to do with epistemological questions, to do with the practices of particular sciences uh, tends to fall under the rubric of philosophy of science. Right. And we're, I'm sure we're going to dive in more on this topic, but before we begin the history lesson, if you will, what what you mentioned also as well, the scientific revolution and what is the scientific, what in your opinion is the scientific revolution? Well, it's a label that's used mostly by historians of science, I suppose, and not so many of them anymore, um, to refer to a period in European history between around uh, <coughs> Copernicus's work around 1500 and um, Isaac Newton's work at the end of the 17th, beginning of the 18th centuries. Uh, it's a period that has been traditionally regarded, certainly for the last, let's say, um, 75 years or more, uh, as having had a particularly crucial relevance to the emergence of modern science as we understand it now in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, the scientific revolution is the period in which you have Copernicus deciding that the Earth orbits around the Sun and is no longer taken to be stationary at the center of the universe. Uh, it's a period in which you have Galileo also supporting Copernicanism and developing some of the arguments that go into the formation of mechanics, modern mechanics, uh, with people like Isaac Newton. Uh, it's a period that sees the universe being regarded as infinite or at least indefinite in extent, rather than being finite, as had previously been believed. So it's a period in which many beliefs about the universe change, and many beliefs about how to understand the universe also change. And you get the rise of particular kinds of mathematical formalism in regard to uh, physical ideas. Uh, it's a period in which you get the rise of uh, particular kinds of experimental procedures that come to be regarded as having a privileged uh, ability to uncover things about the world. It's a period in which a great deal changes in conceptions about the natural world and in conceptions of how you can come to learn about the natural world. And so 
uh, if you want to play it up as a great world historical event, you talk about the scientific revolution, although that's less popular a name now than used to be the case. I've heard it mentioned quite a few times in your lectures as well. I haven't know that I've seen on the internet, of course, I haven't seen, unfortunately, I had the pleasure to see you live, which I hope I will one day. But I want to begin with the Islamic Golden Age, because many people may today think of Islam as this backward religion, but in fact, it's rather the opposite. And uh, what, what, what made the Islamic culture so such fantastic astronomers? And uh, what, was the, what was the interest in astronomy? Well, um, there are various reasons why in Islamic culture um, there would be an interest in Greek-style mathematical astronomy. One of the biggest ones that doesn't get talked about as much as perhaps it ought to be is astrology. Uh, astrology and astronomy were not really distinct enterprises in the ancient world, in the Islamic world, in early modern Europe either. Uh, and interest in astrology certainly fueled a lot of Hellenistic uh, astronomy, mathematical astronomy in late antiquity. It fueled a lot of Islamic interest in uh, astronomy uh, in the, uh, well, the Islamic golden age is generally taken to be something like 10th century AD. Um, or in medieval and early modern Europe, astrology was also an integral part of interest in astronomy and particularly in planetary astronomy because the positions and motions of planets are, are central, of course, to astrological prognostication. Um, so in the case of the Islamic world, interests for practical um, non-astrological reasons will relate to things like the ordinary sorts of things like navigation and determining the direction of Mecca and things like that, but also particularly with regard to planetary astronomy, um, astrological interests as well. And right. that is, as I say, for um, a number of other cultural settings in which Greek-style mathematical astronomy has been pursued. Right. And uh, someone I want to mention here is, uh, forgive me if I say his name wrong, and uh, I had to try to read my, my own writing here, uh, Abu Rab Rahu Al-Biruni. And uh, how did you find... Right. How did he find the Earth's rotation and what? how did he come across that theory? Well, um, the idea that the Earth maybe rotates on its axis and it's the rotation of a spherical Earth that gives the appearance of the heavens revolving overhead is something that had been proposed back in uh, Greek antiquity, in fact. Um, so it wasn't in itself a new idea, the idea that the relative motions of the vault of the heavens and a spherical earth um, would show the same thing in the motions of the heavens, regardless of whether it's the earth or the heavens that revolve, uh, was something that was perfectly well known from Greek antiquity. Uh, and it was usually regarded as a curiosity, as something that you could imagine as possibly being the case, but for which there was no real possibility of proof. And that continued to be the case right the way through to the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe with the rise of Copernicanism. Right. And it's not before, eight, I'm going to jump a little ahead of time now, and uh, it's not before the 1840s that so the word scientist is used, is not correct? Well, with, with, uh, with um, stellar parallax, you could say that, but by that time, nobody, certainly in uh, the European world, the Western world, 
um, doubted that the Earth moves and orbits around the Sun and all the rest of it. So by the time that kind of apparently positive proof came in um, for the motion of the Earth and the size of the universe and so on, all those various things um, were dead letters by that time. And nobody doubted them. So um, there was no crucial experiment that made everybody say, oh, wait, the Earth moves after all. Um, by the time those kinds of results came in, everybody was perfectly happy on all sorts of other grounds uh, in right. that they understood how things worked. How far would you say that people still believe that the sun rotated around the Earth and not the Earth rotating around the sun? How far up would you say that people believed this was the case? Um, it's very hard to say, really. Obviously, when one looks at learned culture, um, that's fairly easy. You just look at books and, and things of that sort and the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society and whatnot uh, and get an idea of when it becomes a received piece of wisdom. How much this applies to just regular, ordinary, illiterate people uh, in Europe uh, is another question. And it's not really clear uh, how one should answer that question. Certainly, by the end of the 17th century, learned culture, literate culture in Europe uh, tended to accept the idea that the earth moved. Uh, there, were, there were holdouts um, who could still find grounds for denying this, but broadly speaking, um, learned culture accepted unproblematically that the earth moved by the time you get to the end of the 17th century with a few holdouts, as I say. Um, but as regards regular people, I, I have no idea when one would say um, it became generally accepted among people in general, including illiterate people, um, that the earth moved. Probably not much before the 19th century. Right. Which brings us to uh, Galileo. And uh, we have to start with the finding of the telescope. And that, was, that wasn't really supposed to be a telescope. It was supposed to be a war design, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Uh, the idea was Galileo's idea in particular was that it would be a good uh, military weapon um, so that you could look from the top of St. Mark's Tower in Venice and see enemy ships approaching and identify them as enemy ships much earlier than you could if you were just a lookout without a telescope. And that's how he tried to sell it to the Venetian Senate when he came up with the gadget. Um, not that he was the first person to put these things together, to put lenses together and make such a device. Uh, but that was the way that he tried to sell his, his version of it. Uh, and uh, it was only subsequently that he tried looking at the heavens and thought that that would be an interesting thing to try. It wasn't an obvious association at first. So this is more, more or less an accident or curiosity? Sort of, though at the same time, um, Thomas Harriot in uh, England um, was also turning uh, a telescope of his own devising again because of rumors that had got around of the invention of such a device that made people try to make one for themselves. Harriet looked up at the heavens and looked at the moon and so on a little bit before Galileo did. The main difference is that Harriet didn't publish and publicize his observations, whereas Galileo did immediately, because Galileo knew that this was going to be good for him uh, to get the publicity and fame that would accrue to the new discoveries that he made when he pointed the telescope at, at the heavens. Didn't people believe that all all the all of the so in the sky was stars and not planets before that point? Um, that everything was stars and that was not 
some of it was not planets and in fact no, I mean pla planets uh, are recognized in Greek antiquity the five naked eye planets are understood and um, uh, studied in Greek antiquity and long before that in Babylonian uh, Babylonian astronomy as well uh, wandering stars as as the word planet uh, means in in the original Greek from which the word planet derives. Right. Um, so yeah, planets were well understood among astronomically literate cultures uh, in antiquity. Right, and uh, forgive me, I have to. Uh, and there's a, it's there's a, isn't it Thomas Galileo that we found this supernova as well? Yes, yeah, yeah, as as they're now now called, yeah. Um, novas were not uncommon to be seen, whether you call them novas or supernovas, um, they would occur occasionally appear. Um, and the famous supernova in the 1570s um, certainly made people wonder about the nature of the heavens uh, in relation to uh, Copernican ideas of the earth now being a part of the heavens, the earth being a planet, and therefore uh, uh, heavenly in the same way as other planets. Um, At what point, and how, how well was Galileo's achievements received by the church and Catholic church in Italy? At uh, well, it, it varied. Um, the main thing to point out is that although there was some opposition from churchmen um, for basically rocking the boat and apparently contradicting a literal reading of passages in scripture of the Jesuit order, the great intellectual elite of the Catholic church in that period, and as in subsequent periods for that matter, um, were quite warmly disposed towards Galileo for a while until he managed to alienate them by uh, attacking um, certain prominent Jesuits um, for being what he wanted to regard as, as scientifically ignorant. Um, but he certainly uh, did not meet with widespread condemnation from the church in the immediate aftermath of his announcing his discoveries. Um, there were people who were sympathetic towards him in the church, in the Catholic church, as well as, of course, in um, Protestant denominations in the period as well. And uh, at what point does he publish his book? And isn't that kind of what is it called today a bestseller? Yes, it was. It was a big sensation. The Starry Messenger, it's usually called in English, Siderius Nuncius, which means a starry message or starry messenger, depending on how you choose to translate the Latin. It seems that he meant something like starry message rather than messenger, but um, it doesn't really make matter too much. It's, it's a little book. Uh, it made a big sensation. Uh, he made sure that it did by making sure that copies were sent out to prominent people throughout Europe so that uh, the publicity could be uh, egged along a little bit. Uh, and he made sure that he got full advantage from his fame uh, from having made these discoveries. So he gets himself appointed as court mathematician and philosopher to the Grand Duke of Tuscany, for example, in Florence, um, uh, a patronage relationship that benefits Galileo considerably. Uh, and he is the famed discoverer of things like the four prominent uh, moons of Jupiter, uh, which he names after the uh, Medici family, which was the ruling family of Tuscany, of Florence in that period. And so as a re re return for naming the 
four satellites of Jupiter, the four prominent satellites of Jupiter. After the Medici family, he gets appointed to a nice court position. Uh, as a consequence of that, he always had a, a, an eye towards uh, getting the advantage he could from his discoveries and his claims. And uh, what what is the, he? Uh, forgive me if my research is wrong, but I told, when I looked it up, it says he found the scientific method. And what is the scientific method? Oh, who knows? Historians of I mean, science. It, historians of science don't talk much about the scientific method because. Uh, it, it isn't really a very helpful term that there there is the sort of uh, back of an envelope version of you know hypotheses and 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 predictions and experimental confirmation or or falsification and all that but the idea that there's a a a a system of making scientific discoveries where you just sort of crank a handle and put observations in at one end and get scientific knowledge out at the other is not something that uh, historians of science or philosophers of science um, take seriously anymore. There's no such thing as the scientific method. There are all sorts of different ways of doing things in all sorts of different scientific specialties. Um, so that kind of talk is not really engaged in very much anymore by people who study the sciences right. as, as human phenomena. And uh, how do we move on to René Descartes? And he has a famous quote, I think, therefore I am. And tell, tell me a little bit about, because he had a vision. And what was this vision that René had? Um, it depends what, you, what, what, you're, what you're getting at there, really. Um, what Descartes does is to try to reconstruct um, the nature of um, higher, higher learning uh, in his own time. Um, he wanted to replace the learning of the Greek sage Aristotle, which tended to dominate um, what one might call higher education in Europe in that period. Uh, he wanted to replace it with ideas of his own. So Aristotle talks about physics in the sense of the makeup of the natural world and how the natural world works and according to what principles it operates. Descartes wants to replace it with an entirely different worldview, which means a different way of understanding the universe and also a different way of describing the structure and character of the universe. So for Aristotle, the Earth is stationary at the center of the universe, a sphere nonetheless, but a, a stationary at the center of a finite universe. For Descartes, the universe is regarded as indefinite in extent, going on indefinitely in all directions. Um, for Descartes, the Earth is a planet orbiting around the sun, and the sun is just another star. All the stars are taken to be suns at great distances away from us. Um, the way in which you could learn about the natural world and the kinds of things you could say about the natural world were very different for Descartes too. Descartes' metaphysics, uh, as it's called, um, is um, very different from Aristotelian metaphysics. Um, and um, what Descartes does is to introduce an idea of trying to understand natural phenomena in terms of uh, what he regards as mechanical principles, understanding the behaviors of things in the universe in terms of inert bits of matter colliding with and pushing on other bits of matter, tiny material corpuscles being the foundation of material substances, um, what one might think of as atomism, but except Descartes' particles are not 
are indivisible. They're not literally atoms. They're tiny little invisible particles that have particular properties due to their mechanical characteristics of size and shape. Uh, and um, what's the other one? Uh, anyway, uh, they interact uh, mechanically by colliding and locking onto one another and all the rest of it. And those are the only things that you're supposed to do, to use, I mean, in understanding the way in which natural phenomena occur. So Descartes tries a wholesale replacement uh, of um, Aristotelian style philosophy with his own style of philosophy. And this meets with a great deal of opposition and also acceptance in many different quarters uh, in the middle of the 17th century in Europe. Right. And uh, this brings me to Isaac Newton. And he's, of course, famous for the apple. But, but did it really happen the way we think it happened? And do you think it was something it's kind of romanticized the way he found gravity? Well, the, the story is certainly a romanticized story, though it's quite possible um, that he sees an apple falling and thinks about it. Um, the idea, of course, was simply to identify the force acting on an accelerating apple as it falls to the ground with a force understood to keep the moon in its orbit around the Earth. Uh, and the idea that that attractive force that pulls the apple is also pulling the moon. And the moon's uh, inertia, in effect, balances out that force pulling the moon to the center of the Earth and results in an orbital path around the Earth. Um, the story about the apple is a perfectly nice way to um, dramatize, so to speak, as, as well as romanticize. Um, it's a simplified version. I'm sorry? It's a simplified version of how... Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, it's, it's reckoned that, that there, there is such an apple tree or a scion of the apple tree uh, that still is there in, in, in Grantham in Lincolnshire, where the Newton family estate was located. So perhaps he did see such a thing. Who knows? Right. And uh, what are some of the scientific literature contributions that he done as well? Uh, of Newton? Yeah, Newton, yes. Well, of course, his great work is the uh, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, which sets out his principles of mechanics and inverse square law gravitation uh, as a way of trying to understand how the solar system works and indeed how the entire universe works, he reckons. And his other book is uh, The Optics, which was originally written in English, whereas the uh, um, Principia, as it's known usually in its abbreviated Latin version, um, was originally published in Latin, which was the typical way of publishing mathematical treatises uh, in that period. Um, and Newton had an enormous uh, consequent reputation uh, in Europe in general uh, in the 18th century as a result of those works and the claims that were made for them. Newton was treated more or less as a, uh, an almost superhuman figure in many quarters in the course of the 18th century uh, on the strength of those works and the uh, meaning that was attributed to them. Right. And of course we have to, forgive me if I jump a little too ahead, but uh, we have to, can't talk about the scientific history 
without mentioning Albert Einstein. And when he leave Europe because of Hitler take over Germany in, in 19, 1933, how does how does he get involved in the Manhattan Project? And is it a coincidence? Was he, was he hunted down or? Well, I mean, he he himself famously writes to the president, Franklin Roosevelt, um, to tip Roosevelt off uh, for the the possibility of nuclear energy being used for massive, uh, massively powerful uh, explosives. Uh, And he he knew this from just the the state of physics in the 1930s. Um, He wasn't... uh, uh, he wasn't alone in, in making these predictions or having the idea that this might occur, but he had a great reputation by that time. Uh, and uh, his voice being added to that of um, scientific experts advising the U.S. government and other governments um, certainly played a part in making the U.S. government take seriously these possibilities. Um, but it's not just him, of course, at all. Right. And um... Tell me, tell, me, tell me a little quickly about some of the other work other, apart from the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project. Well, um, a way to get at that has to do with the famous publications of 1905. There's the one on special relativity. There's uh, the one on the photoelectric effect. Um, he uh, dips his fingers in many different uh, many different areas of physics, particularly when he's a young man, a, a, a patent clerk uh, in Zurich. Uh, and uh, there are things one can say about his scientific style in that period and in the later period as well. Um, I don't know if you want me to ramble on about those. No, please do. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, what, one of the things one can compare Einstein with somebody like uh, Galileo, in fact, by the extent to which both of them are interested in what are often called thought experiments. Um, you figure out how things ought to happen on the basis of what seems to make sense and what doesn't lead to inner contradictions, and then and then set those things up as principles. So. Um, for example, uh, when uh, he sets up the uh, special theory of relativity in 1905, um, what Einstein does is to set it up as a theory of principle, as he calls it. What he wants to do is to understand the electrodynamics of moving bodies on the basis of basic principles rooted in universal experience. So the famous thing about it not being um, it not being possible to uh, detect a difference in the speed of light depending on the motion of the source and the measurement, Uh, in other words, the invariability of the speed of light, is something that he establishes as a principle simply on the basis that no such variance had ever been detected in any experimental work. And so he says, okay, then let's treat it as if it really is invariant. The speed of light, however it's measured in vacuo, Uh, will always come out the same way. So treat that as a principle and see what follows from it. Those sorts of principles are things that uh, Einstein thinks are particularly perspicuous and foundational in making sense of the universe, much as um, Galileo in in deciding that falling bodies accelerate with speed proportional to time elapsed. 
um, sets that up as a principle in large part because of its neatness. He also tries to confirm it experimentally, does Galileo, uh, but really above all the convincing quality of that generalization for Galileo is that it just seems right. It just seems to fit everything. Uh, it's, 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 a, 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 it's almost like um, the axioms of uh, a mathematical theorem. Uh, Euclidean geometry or Archimedean statics or something, where you have basic foundational principles that you accept as givens and then see what follows from them deductively. Galileo does that in his work on falling bodies, and Einstein does that with his work on uh, relativity when he comes to develop general relativity uh, in, uh, I guess, 1915, it's published originally. He comes up with a new principle, um, called the principle of equivalence, uh, which says that the physical effects and phenomena associated with acceleration are exactly the same as the effects you get in a uniform gravitational field. Um, he says these are the same thing because they are indistinguishable. So if you are being accelerated in, a, in an elevator, uh, it's exactly the same effect as if you were in a, an intensifying gravitational field and there will be no physical way of distinguishing those two different circumstances. So this, this reliance on fundamental, one might almost say kind of metaphysical principles is something that's important for Einstein, these theories of principle, and that's important for many people before him in a particular tradition of mathematical sciences uh, of which one can take Galileo as a, a particularly good exemplar. And this brings me to the last segment, which is a new segment. I'd like to draw fun questions. And uh, my first one is, uh, I read a few months back, Stephen Hawking's a brief theory of history of time. Exactly. And it, he mentions in the book, um, this, the twin paradox. Can you explain quickly the twin paradox, what it's about? Because I found it rather interesting. Well, the idea is that uh, according to uh, Einsteinian relativity, um, the faster you travel, the slower time goes. So the idea is that if you have two twins, you normally would have two twins, of course. Um, if you have two twins and one of them goes off in a rocket, traveling very, very fast, getting up close to the speed of light and comes back again, um, he ought to be much younger than the first twin who stayed put because he's been traveling very fast and that will have slowed, speed, slowed time down for him. Uh, whereas the other twin who stayed at home won't have aged. So the idea is that um, if you did it the other way around and took the relative motions of those two uh, people and said that one of the twins, the, the twin that you treated as stationary to begin with was actually moving and the twin that you treated as moving was treated as stationary, then surely that the uh, age difference ought to be in the opposite direction. And since motion is supposed to be relative for Einstein, there's no absolute motion, no absolute measurement of speed and all the rest of it, except relative to other bodies, reference bodies, then why is it that one of them um, is younger than the other one when both of them could be treated as if they were moving and the other one as being stationary? So that is basically what the twin paradox is about. Of course, I gotta ask you is, do you think time travel ever will be possible back and for, forward in the future? Oh, if I knew that, I'd probably be able to make a lot of money. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, teleportation. 
search me. Hmm? There, there are, there are, you know, quantum effects that seem to um, point in that direction at a, a tiny, submicroscopic, subatomic level. So Star Trek in the near future, then? <laughs> oh, Why not? Uh, re reality of, of is Earth really flat? Oh, bits of it are. Mm -hmm. Uh, do, you, do you think that alien life, that there is possible from intell intellectual alien race out there? Yeah, why not? And, uh, <laughs> I, have, I have no professional credibility in any of these sorts of questions. And what do you believe lies in the future of science? I don't know. It gets more and more... Um, more and more focused on practical achievement and less and less focused on what used to be called natural philosophy, it seems to me. Um, natural philosophy, which dates from, again, Greek antiquity as a, as a term and as a practice, um, was about trying to understand the natural world. Uh, and the term natural philosophy remains uh, in, in currency uh, well up through uh, the 19th century, but then really falls away and becomes a rather old fashioned term by the late 19th century and in, in the course of the 20th century. Um, and then science seems more and more to be focused on practical achievements rather than simply intellectual understanding of how things are and work uh, in the universe. Uh, and so I suspect that it will continue in that direction, that science will be more and more uh, of a technical endeavor uh, aimed at understanding how to do things and less and less focused on a philosophical goal of understanding. But there's always a bit of both in all areas of science. Right. And uh, this brings me to, do you have anything you wish to promote that you wish to, for me to send, put a link in the description, perhaps? No, not really. That's all right. Is there any social media people can find you on if they are interested in taking contact with you? I have any questions? Well, yeah, I mean, they can they can Google and find my email address and all that sort of thing perfectly easily, which I'm always happy to respond to. Perfect. Um, but yesterday has been Peter Deer. And that, you know, this has been the history of science. Next week, we will tune in because we are going to talk about the history of Christmas next week. My name is Alan Hedegaard, and this has been Well That Aged Well. We are also on YouTube now, so you can find us there. We are available on Spotify, Apple, Apple Podcast, anywhere you can find a podcast. And thank you very much for coming to my listening in tonight. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.